Austin, do you remember how long it took me to find a podcast platform for us? Forever. I ended up finding one called Anchor, and I initially chose it just because it was free. But it also has a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. They also distributed for us, so that's why we ended up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all of our other places. And you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Everything you need to make a podcast in just one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Will This Be On The Test, a podcast where we talk about the things that we didn't learn in school. I'm Austin. I'm Maddie. This week, we are doing something a little not different, but themed. We don't normally do themes. We do accidentally do themes. We are reaching the end of Hispanic Heritage Month right now, and we thought it'd be very important to highlight a couple of important figures or events in Hispanic history. Yes, and it's hopefully this will be the first of a bunch of themed episodes we do around historic events or days. We're talking about history, so, you know, Christmas history or whatever. Full disclosure, we are both very white people. Um, Glow-in-the-dark white? <laughs> we grew up going to predominantly white schools for the most part, mm -hmm. and as a result, we didn't learn a whole lot about Hispanic people or events in any of our schools. No. So bear with us if we pronounce something wrong or if we get a fact wrong, we're, you know, we're here to learn. <laughs> yes. We're here to learn much more than we are to teach because you should not be using this for anything other than entertainment purposes. <laughs> As always, kids, do not use us to study for your test. None of this will be on there. Talking about things we didn't learn in school. This is a historical figure I did not learn about in school, but I learned about from the genie from Aladdin, rapping about him during a little commercial segment on Saturday morning cartoons. How did you get Aladdin Saturday morning cartoons? You didn't have cable. I, we had ABC. That was on the antenna. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Aladdin did a rap about Cesar Chavez. He was a workers' rights advocate, specifically working with farm workers and migrant workers in California and the Southwest. He was kind of an awesome guy, did so much for what were the lowest paid, marginalized, largely Hispanic workers in California. Okay, very cool. Just making sure we have a microphone plugged in and I just realized my headset was also plugged in, but it looks like we're being picked up on the mic. I'm gonna stop for a <laughs> second and make sure. Please hold. We were in fact recording on the microphone. I edit the episodes and I have literally never done sound editing before. It was the one thing I didn't study when I was a theater major. Back to Cesar Chavez. Back to Cesar Chavez. So he was born in Yuma, Arizona on March 31st, 1927. Um, you just like, you know, so we all know what happens in a couple of years. It's the depression. <laughs> I just used like, you know, and so all together. <laughs> like, you know, so totally. Guys, we told you last time there's got to be a drinking game by now. There should be. And I hope you survive it. So he was born in Yuma, Arizona. His family did end up losing their family farm in the Depression, and they had to move from Arizona to California. I've heard different stories about why they lost it. Part of it was because it was the Dust Bowl and everyone was losing their farms. Some other websites claim that he was swindled out of it by white people. That's unheard of. White people have never mm -hmm. swindled anything. So I'm not entirely sure which was which, but both are equally likely. So they moved to California. It's the place you want to be. It does know how to party. It does know how to party. He did not like the schools there because 
he would be punished, corporally punished, for speaking Spanish in school, even though he grew up in a Spanish-speaking household. That will lead into mine later. Yay! Ooh. Ah! What happened? I knocked the desk. Ah! So, he didn't like school, and eventually when he graduated, he did join the Navy, didn't like the Navy, got out of the ma Navy, got married to his wife, Helena Favela Chavez. They had eight children. Dang. I can barely handle four cats. Yes. That is a lot of children. I had a class that had eight kids in it once. That was a little small for a class, but a lot for a household. I know. you got to feed them and water them. <laughs> Make sure their soil is good. Mix some compost in for them. I or might be confusing them with plants. We're not parents. We are very not parents. <laughs> he did begin work for the community service organization. He would go around, he'd organize chapters of this. He'd do things like fundraising where he'd like sell Christmas trees or set up a rummage store. But it never really worked out that well. And usually they'd collapse shortly after he left. The Christmas trees? Yes, the Christmas trees. Just fall right over. Mm -hmm. They also did a lot of stuff with organizing sit-ins and you know voter registration things while he was doing this. But this kind of set him down his path to where he founded the UFW, or United Farm Workers. He became really disenfranchised with the CSO. Disenfranchised? Yeah, he just, he got tired of it because he didn't feel like he was doing enough. I don't know if that's the right word. It's the word Wikipedia used. Disenfranchised, I think, means what he was fighting against for the uh, United Farm Workers. But disenchanted? Can't... Maybe disenchanted. Why do I put up with you? This is awful. Disenfranchised with the CSO. He missed the birth of his sixth child because he was working. I mean, he'd seen it before. I mean, he'd seen five others. And he'll see it again. And he'd seen a couple more, so I think he'd be fine. And they moved around a lot, which was tough on his family. These chapters would fall apart after he'd stop setting them up and he'd move on. Then they'd collapse, and there's just this big cycle of awfulness. So in 1959, he became the director of the CSO. Okay, and that's the Community Service Organization? Community Service Organization. That's that's the whole name of it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, around this time, also, the FBI started looking into him because they were working with a lot of community service organizing and union labors and all that right stuff. And it was in the middle of the Red Scare. So they started investigating him out of concern that he was, in fact, one of those damn communists. They did the same thing to Lucille Ball? Yes, but she was actually a communist. Kind of. I can get into that another time, though. Ooh. One of the big things he did while he was in charge of the CSO, he got permanent residents living in the state of California access to state pensions. Okay. Which was a big deal that helped a lot of people, especially ones that really didn't have a voice at the time, because this was in 1959. He did resign from the CSO in 1962 to form the Farm Workers Association, which would later become the United Farm Workers. He was unemployed while he was organizing this. Meaning his family, with eight children, eight. Eight. That's was, a, a lot to have with uh, unemployed. I assume his wife was also underemployed or unemployed? Uh, she, was, she was a farm worker. So underemployed, even if yeah. she worked 70 hours a week, because yep. farm workers, I mean, they have to form a union for a reason. Yeah. And he didn't want this to be just another union, but a movement. So they actually had their phrase of, Viva la casa. Okay. You got it right? Um. I don't speak Spanish. I, it's been a while, so I apologize if I got it wrong. I think it's Viva La Causa. La Causa? But I could be very wrong. I haven't spoken Spanish in over 10 years. I speak, like, menu Spanish. That's about it. Uh, this big movement, 
and the dues were $3.50 a month once he got this up and running. The first big hurdle, and when they hit the national stage, was the Delano, the Delano Grape Strike. Again, these migrant workers, because you know the world was opening up at this time, they were starting to realize that there were other places and other jobs and, and like unions, and they wanted to unionize these farm workers, which was illegal. Uh, podcasting doesn't do well for gestures. I said bouncing up and down and pointing at mine because that is also relevant. This strike ended up lasting five years in total and had thousands of workers involved in it. Wait, for five years there was limited access to wine? No, these were, these were table grapes. These weren't wine grapes. So don't worry. <laughs> I mean, I would not drink wine in order to help people get better pay and safer working conditions. Mm -hmm. I would, but man, I'd miss the wine. And during this time, like, the workers were beaten. They'd shut off water to the migrant camps. I will stop drinking wine entirely to keep that from happening. And again, these were some of the most marginalized, lowest paid workers in America at the time, which they still are. To start it, he led a 300-mile-long pilgrimage from Delano to Sacramento to hopefully get some attention from these growers and the state government about these awful working conditions and the fact that they wanted to organize. They didn't listen. So he had some of his followers follow a grape shipment from these fields to the docks, and they spoke to the longshoremen about how they wanted to unionize, and the longshoremen decided they were not going to load any non-union-picked grapes. Oh, that's so cool! And 1,000 10-ton cases of grapes rotted in port. Good for them! Didn't stop there. Not only did they do the longshoremen, they got warehouse men also refused to load non-union grapes. Now, do you have any, like, statistics on who these people were? No. Because I, I just wonder if they were people of color as well. I mean, it's possible. I mean, there's the Longshoremen Union, so it's it's a big organization. It still is. I don't <laughs> I think. They've, I think they've rolled in with the Teamsters now. I don't know much about unions outside of the union that I used to be in. I know they exist, and I know that they can help people. A little bit of full disclosure here. I am from a gigantically pro-union family. My grandpa was the president of his local union chapter of the UAW, that's the United Auto Workers, and he basically spent his entire life doing union-y things. So I've got a little bit of a pro-union bias. I think most of my family was in ununionized fields, um, and except for teachers like me where we did have unions. So they also led a consumer boycott against the two big grape companies in the Delano Valley, Shenley Industries and DiGiorgio Corporation. And this was a huge success. It was like suburban moms would stop buying grapes from these people. So they were having huge losses. Good job, Karen. Good job, Karen. But the grape companies were not really happy about this. What? I know. So they actually would hire criminals to go in and break up union meetings. Mm -hmm. They would turn over tables, beat people, stomp on ballot boxes, harass and threaten everybody. But uh, in 1970, again, after five years of striking and fighting over, over unionizing. Oh, hi, Fezzik. He just meowed at us again. I don't know if that one picked up. Come here. Oh, big boy. What a good cat. So in 1970, after five years of striking, 
they finally reached an agreement that included higher pay for these migrant workers, some healthcare benefits, and safety protections from pesticides. They didn't care about that until then. It's like, oh, you mean you're dying from these poisons? Well, toughen up. How are we doing on these things today, though? Not much better. Yeah. So this was a big victory for the UFW. And then, shortly after that, there was the United States' largest farm worker strike. It was the largest in American history. It was the salad bowl strike. It kind of started out as a dispute with the Teamsters and these growers, and the Teamsters were granted all of these union benefits, but they left the, the farm workers out of it, which made the UFW mad. It's like, hey, we're the farm workers union. We should have been involved in this. And they weren't. Come on, this is like our turf. What are you doing? At this point, Chavez went on one of his many hunger strikes. This was one of the many things he'd do. He'd do lots of hunger strikes, passive resistance, all that stuff he learned by reading about Gandhi. And as this started, they had lettuce boycotts again, like don't buy non-union lettuce. Lettuce growers were losing about $500,000 a day. And this is in 1959 money? This is in 1970 money. 1970 money. So that's about $3 zillion a day now. Yes. That is five iPhones a day. <laughs> Especially the one with the three cameras. I it's got that. three cameras. But, I mean, my phone is terrible, so... Oh, God, I love my phone. Where was I? Phones! <laughs> So five dollars $500,000 a day. Mm -hmm. The price of lettuce doubled. Consumers were paying twice as much for lettuce, which they were not happy about. A California court ordered the end of the strike. They, they were, said that they were striking illegally and they had to go to work. Oh, okay. I was, I was asking if they could do that. It's not an official union at, at this point, it is it? It is not. There we go. Okay, okay. Obviously, Cesar Chavez and the strikers refused. And again, the lettuce boycott was still going on. At this point, there was widespread violence. There were shootings, rock throwing, which both sides were throwing rocks at each other, which was less bad than the beatings that the pro-union people were getting from Ugh. the growers. And they bombed one of the UFW offices at that time. There were no fatalities in the bombing, thankfully. Oh, cat butt! <laughs> That's helping. Shortly after that, Cesar Chavez was arrested. This is the first time he was arrested, by the way. Oh, wow. The FBI have been watching him for years. The FBI have been watching him. We'll get into, like, part of why the FBI watching him was hilarious. While he was arrested, RFK's widow and Olympic gold winner, Raffer Johnson, came to visit him in prison to support him. They were attacked by anti-union mobs outside the prison, and the police and various organizations had to intervene to know this into being a full-on riot. And an assassination attempt. I mean, it was RFK's widow. I think that's still an assassination. It got bad. He was released by order of the California Supreme Court on December 23rd. So he was in jail for two weeks. That is, he was in jail for this for more time than Felicity Huffman's going to be in jail. Ugh, don't get me started on that nonsense. Yep. The day after he was released from jail, he called for a strike and boycott of six additional lettuce growers. <laughs> So the strike ended on March 26, 1971, and they were fully allowed to unionize. This was a colossal victory for the UFW and these migrant workers in California at the time. However, at this time, Cesar Chavez was staunchly anti-immigrant. Okay. Specifically, illegal immigrants and capping migrant workers who were allowed to come in okay. to the United States. Because a lot of them were used as union-breaking labor and scab workers by these growers. 
because they were not union members and they would work for way less than anyone else would. So was his problem that they were immigrants or that they were scabs? That they were, that they were scabs. That they were coming in and taking jobs away from his union workers. Okay, yeah, this... I mean, this, this is this is one of those kind of gray areas of. No, this goes back to the idea that in general people are neither fully heroes or fully villains. Yep. And I was actually kind of struggling if whether I wanted to put this in there or not, just because there is currently at the time of recording lots of disgusting anti-immigrant rhetoric out there, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to include it. We normally don't talk about anything ahead of time, but we discussed whether or not to leave that in, and we decided to be the equivalent of covering up things that other historical figures have done to fully heroify them. And that's not giving a fair and balanced or full story. No, it is not. So we left it in, including the stuff about how he would report uh, illegal immigrants working for these growers. And he also set up a human chain to try and prevent border crossing. Hands across America. But a very specific part of America. Uh, later on, when Jerry Brown was elected... Jerry Brown's been around for forever, and if you, I think we could do a story on the gold rush, and it'll be Governor Jerry Brown shooting Wild Bill or something. Governor Jerry Brown, he was the actual person in charge of Roanoke. Yeah, he's been around forever. It's terrifying. So he got elected with the support of the UFW, but after he was elected, he grew kind of cold on the union. It's like, we don't really want to support you that much. <laughs> Cesar Chavez organized a march from Modesto, and it was just... Huge. 15,000 people were a part of it by the end. Shortly after that, Jerry Brown decided he did support the UFW after all. This is 15,000 people before Facebook could invite them. Yeah, this was word of mouth. And they were like, what's this group walking through our town? It's like, oh yeah, let's walk with them. In 1975, he signed a bill that was the California Agricultural Labor Relations Act, which established collective bargaining for farm workers and set up a state board to help organize and run it. It was underfunded and didn't really work well and kind of collapsed in on itself within a year, but it was a good start. Unfortunately, after this, things started falling apart. He tried to pass another bill that would further protect unions, Proposition 14. It was resoundingly defeated in California. Cesar Chavez was constantly railing against disloyalty from his people. He was accusing them of being communists. Uh Uh-huh. Because, again, he was also staunchly anti-communist. I hate that word, disloyal. And to fight disloyalty, he used a method developed by a cult called Sin-Anon. It started out as a drug rehabilitation program and slowly devolved into a cult. Wait a second. This was on... My Favorite Murder? My Favorite Murder, yeah. yeah. So uh, they used the game with which they would berate and abuse yeah. people until they would kind of break down. That's what he used for the people who worked for the union. That is a... That's a I, problem. <laughs> I feel like unions nowadays are uh, there to defend you against that. Yeah, that's they are there to defend you against that. He also accused people of being spies for the Republican Party... And for communists. So it was lots of paranoia happening. Things weren't going well. And he didn't handle the, from going from stunning success to struggling with maintaining things very well. Where are his wife and kids during all of this? They were around. <laughs> all around because there were so many of them. Yeah. Then there are two really big gaffes that happened. In 1977, in an attempt to reach out to Filipino migrant workers in California, 
he met with Marcos in Manila and endorsed his regime. This was also at the time all of the human rights violations were kind of coming to light, and it was a it was not a good move on his part to endorse Marcos. He also, in the mid-80s, decided to do some real estate investing, and one of the firms he invested in was using non-union labor. There was an expose about this, and it was, to quote the newspaper, an embarrassment. He was starting to struggle near the end of his life. In 1988, he uh, decided they were going to do another great boycott, again, against pesticides you know, mm -hmm. being unsafely used around workers. This time, he fasted for 35 days. He lost 30 pounds and developed health problems that would follow him for the rest of his life. Yeah, that'll do it. Unfortunately, this boycott failed. They did not meet any of their goals. He did die on April 23rd, 1993. What year was he born? 27. 27. So the paranoia started in the 70s, and he wasn't old enough to necessarily probably have dementia or anything yet. Yep. It just, you know, sometimes you struggle, and it's just... <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a stressful life he led up until that point. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he did a lot of good. So anyway, in 1994, he posthumously got the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Interesting. From George, George Clinton. From Bill Clinton. <laughs> George Clinton and the Parliament Funkadelics gave him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Bill Clinton gave him the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1994. I'm a genius. And in 2006, I wrote it down as Governor Terminator because I couldn't remember how to spell Schwarzenegger. Governor Schwarzenegger inducted him into the California Hall of Fame. This is a fun fact. Barack Obama used one of his slogans. It was, Si se puede? Si se puede. Si se puede, or yes, we can. Kansas and, City Royals, I think, used that not long after, didn't they? Yeah. Obama also you know, visited his grave in 2012, so... Yeah, he's a, he's a solid example of a complicated historical figure. Yes, he did so much for so many people and very passionate about what he did. So are you ready for some questions? Yeah, these questions are whether or not something would be on a test, not asking for the answers to the questions. Yes. So will these questions be on the test? Will the fact that he was punished in school for speaking Spanish be on the test? Probably not, but that relates back to my story with my race knife. Ooh, exciting. Well, the fact that he used peaceful protest, civil disobedience, and fasting as part of his methods be on the test? Yes. Will the fact that the Delano Great Strike lasted five years be on the test? Yes. Anything, okay, kids, anything that has a number, like a year or a set of years attached, will always be on the test. You see... I don't think it will, because it's like, this was a five-year struggle. All of these stories, they get wrapped up quickly. It's like A to B. You're not going to learn that this was actually five years well, I think of hard work. I think you'll learn that it was five years. You just won't know what went into it. They'll be like, from this year to this year, this strike happened. Those are the things that will be on the test. I don't think it will be, you know, day by day or even year by year. It'll just be these were the years that it happened. Think about, you know, wars that last a really long time. They'll be like, this year last, this war lasted 11 years. Here's how it began, here's how it ended. Mm -hmm. Maybe a major battle in the middle. Yeah. 
So that is uh, Cesar Chavez, the man I learned about because Robin Williams rapped about him to me. I never heard about him in school. I think the only reason we even really know he was a thing was that he died after we were born. Yeah. Not, you said 93, right? Yeah, he died in 93. So we were barely old enough to understand the news to any yeah. real extent. And I mean, us being in the Midwest, we probably wouldn't have heard about one of those California activists. So my story today, mm -hmm. uh, it occurs before yours, but it involves some of the same issues. This was something we really, really should have learned about in school. There's no valid reason that this wasn't taught. My sources for this, because this gets into a lot of things, are Wikipedia, Library of Congress, Sylvia Mendez's own website, tolerance.org, and then a few other places that I picked one or two things out of. Austin can attest to this. I was really riding the struggle bus trying to find something. She was. She was like, maybe I can do Rita Moreno. And then I'd hear like, I decided not to do Rita Moreno simply because she's still so active. And she's um, so amazing. We love her. But the reason I struggled was because every historical figure I found, there was nothing. It was saying they did this amazing thing and then the article would end. So I'd Google them and there'd be nothing again. And then there were historical events, but they would get so in depth that it would be two episodes at least to cover them. And it really bothers me that I can't find really good in-depth stories about very many Hispanic figures for us. And I think that goes back to the fact that the history of Latin Americans, Hispanic people, everybody from all of that part of the world isn't really celebrated in this country like it should be. Because I, di I didn't want to do somebody that I had any name recognition for. Mm -hmm. And even the ones I did have some, there wasn't a whole lot, except for Cesar Chavez. There was, yeah. everything went back to him. I actually was doing the um, Chicano movement at first. And that was just, there was so much there. But Austin told me he was doing Cesar Chavez. And I'm like, well, then I should just skip it because that was what he was involved with. Yeah. And then I asked Austin and he said, I didn't see those words anywhere in my research. No, I, I mostly focused on the union stuff. But... I found somebody, I found, well, it's really a family that I found who were amazing. Absolutely amazing. Are you ready? Ready. So in school, we learned at least a little bit about Ruby Bridges. I learned nothing about Ruby Bridges until I was in college. I think the only reason I learned about her was we looked at that piece of art where it's her and the tomato on the wall. And I think we might have looked at the photo of the crazy lady screaming yeah. at her. She wasn't uh, the first. Really? No, she was the first African-American child to integrate a school. But before her, there was Sylvia Mendez. I'll be talking today about Mendez versus Westminster. I initially started trying to find just the Sylvia Mendez story, but it was so much more than that. So I'm talking about the entire court case. You ever heard of Mendez versus Winchester? I think I have, but I also followed Supreme Court blog, so I just don't know what the specifics of it were. All right. I had never heard about this, ever. And that's really baffling, not just because of what it did for the country, but for some of the figures who are involved. You're going to recognize the names in this. Mm -hmm. Like Jerry Brown? No. Damn it! No, he is not in this story. So Sylvia Mendez was born on June 7th, 1936 to Gonzalo and Felicitas Mendez, her father was a Mexican immigrant who was running an agricultural business, and her mother was Puerto Rican. 
Her family moved from Santa Ana, California to Westminster, California to run a farm that was owned by a Japanese-American family who had been sent to the internment camps. Oh, we are off to a great start here. Yeah, they rented... Feel good story of the year. They rented the farm and they were running it for them while they were gone. Gonzalo had become a naturalized citizen and Felicitas was born in the U.S. territory and all of their children were born in the United States. So these are all citizens here. The father had been an immigrant, obviously, because he was naturalized. And I'm just mentioning that because I think it's something that will matter to some people. To me, yeah. it's, I think, you know, equality is important no matter what. The town of Westminster only had two schools, Hoover Elementary and 17th Street Elementary. They were part of the Orange County School District, which were segregated at the time. Ugh, Orange County. When we learned about segregation in schools, we only learned about black people and white people. Yep. There was no mention of people of any other descent. Did you ever hear? Like, I literally heard nothing. We heard, again, about um, people of Japanese descent, about the whole internment camp thing. See, that was a side note for me at best. Yeah, we had, like, it might have been, like, a little subchapter on it. But, yeah, we had a bit of it. But did they mention where they went to school before that? No. So I've always kind of wondered how segregation impacted people who were neither black nor white. And I did some idle Googling over the years, never came up with much. I've seen mentions that children of Asian descent were sent to their own schools, but I've also seen that they were not sent to their own schools. Same thing with Latino people. And I've seen almost nothing about buses in public safe spaces. Then I started reading about Sylvia Mendez and her family. And I learned that there were Hispanic-only schools in California. They were called Mexican schools. I kind of doubt everybody there was Mexican. I mean, Sylvia was Mexican and Puerto Rican. I think it was just if you have a certain skin color and speak Spanish or someone in your family speaks Spanish. So um, for those of you who can't hear my eye roll <laughs> or the sound of that blood vessel bursting in my head, I'm making lots of faces right now. Now, this is where it gets back to what I, my question was, though. Mexican-Americans were generally considered to be white legally and therefore were unaffected by legal segregation. They were... Generally, and I keep using generally because that's the legal sense. It's not in practice and they weren't, people weren't, you know, oh, we're not racist. They could share pools. They could share theaters. They could share otherwise segregated spaces. California, though, and thinking about California these days where it's progressive, progressive, progressive. They've banned plastic straws. Progress <laughs> progressive California and the Southwest were the ones to start enacting unofficial slash illegal segregation against Latino people. Huh. California and the Southwest. Oh, California. In the 1940s, a group of school districts in California began to fight against allowing Mexican students to attend their schools. They said that the language barrier meant that they had special needs, as in they're not as smart as white kids. The schools only existed for through grade four and they were saying that they were going to, to prepare they were going to prepare the kids to attend those mainstream schools but they ultimately moved towards forcing all students of Mexican and Latino heritage into the schools regardless of if they could speak English since Mexicans were considered white at the time it was a form of unlawful discrimination but nobody said anything because it was the 19. 40s at this time. Oh, so they were like, it's like, um, Germany's doing things, so we can't pay attention to this. That actually, things like that come up in the original thing I was researching. Sylvia and her two brothers, 
who were named Geronimo and Gonzalo Jr. They attended Hoover Elementary, which was the Mexican school, a two-room wooden shack in their town's Mexican colonia, which is a Mexican neighborhood. Typically, the colonias were lower income, less resources, things like that. Kind of like we still have unofficial neighborhood segregation today. Uh -huh. 17th Street Elementary, on the other hand, was the white school. It was only a mile away, had a big, beautiful building. It was surrounded by palm trees. It had a lawn. This was a two-room shack outside of a muddy Cowfield versus 17th Street Elementary. 17th Street also had more experienced teachers, modern equipment, and a totally different curriculum. So separate but equal is already knocked off just based on the curriculum, especially because 17th Street taught things like geometry, biology, schoolwork. Yeah. Hoover taught boys how to work in trades and girls how to be homemakers. Oh. Now, there is nothing wrong with working in a trade or being a homemaker. Mm-hmm. It's wrong when those are the only options that are presented to you. Yes. And that made this inherently unequal. The fear openly was that Mexican Americans would become dissatisfied with working on the farms, which is why I was yeah. trying to get my papers, and would want other jobs, with one school superintendent saying they were, quote, trying to help these children take their place in society. And a Texas, so not California, but Texas superintendent saying, and it was a much longer analogy, but if a man has much sense or education, he is not going to stick to this kind of work. So you see, it is up to the white population to keep the Mexican on his knees. That is some bullshit. Yeah, and they weren't, so they weren't even trying to hide the fact that this was discrimination. Dude. They weren't even trying to hide the fact that they were separate and unequal. People just ignored it. It's worth noting that prior to this, the Mendez family had been able to send their kids to whatever school they wanted, like or whatever school was their home school. They moved to Westminster, and suddenly they had to send their kids to the Mexican school. Her dad, who was Gonzalo, who is the coolest, saw the difference, and so he said to, I don't know if it was his sister, his wife's sister, Soledad or Sally Vid Vidari, it's uh, a Basque last name, and I don't speak a word of I think that's French. Basque? I don't know. I think that's the really, really lispy Spanish. I've heard that I've heard that her last name is both Basque and French. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So he said to her, take my kids to 17th Street and enroll them. So she took Geronimo, Gonzalo Jr., Sylvia, and then her own children, who were Alice and Virginia, to go enroll. The school leadership looks at the kids, five kids, here's their names, and said that Sally's kids could attend. Because they had white names, they had a non-Hispanic last name, they had light skin and light hair. Sylvia and her brothers could not attend because they had dark skin and Spanish names. This is what they were told. So Sally walked out with all five kids and refused to enroll her children or the other kids in either school. <laughs> so Sylvia's parents decided to fight. Nobody wants this. They just wanted their kids to get an education. Nobody should really have to try to understand why your kids are being denied an education. So they began to fight. Felicitas ran the business while Gonzalo began to meet with leaders throughout the community. He wrote to the Board of Education and all his requests for desegregation were denied. He kept bugging them. He was like, hey, 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 I'm still here. I'm not backing the fuck down. You're going to educate my children. Finally, the superintendent says, okay, we're tired of you. Your kids can come, nobody else can. Oh, that's like 
would you take that deal? I would not take that deal. It's like, no, fuck you. It's everyone's kids. Do you think Gonzalo took that deal? No. He no. said, fuck you. It's everyone's kids. Exactly. He didn't want his kids to have more opportunities than anyone else. He initially struggled to find support from local Latino organizations, but on March 2nd, 1945, he and four other dads got together and filed a lawsuit in the Los Angeles Federal Court against four different school districts, which I forgot to write down, in Orange County, on behalf of approximately 5,000 Hispanic American children. The Mendez family hired David Marcus, who was a Jewish American civil rights attorney who had won similar desegregation lawsuits previously, but never won for schools because schools were still segregated. But he'd won ones for other Hispanic families in California. For the next year, Felicitas took over the business, like I mentioned, and Gonzalo and David drove across Orange County, stopped at farms and colonias, trying to convince Mexican-American families to participate in the lawsuit in some way, whether it's adding their name, whether it's serving as witnesses, things like that. Again, there was a great deal of resistance. Not because... Cat fight. Cat fight. I mean, it is, it is past five o'clock, and they are starving to death. Not because they didn't agree with him, but because, probably rightfully, they were afraid of getting fired. If their white boss found out that they were leaving work and especially to go fight against something that white people had instituted, they'd be fired. So Gonzalo, remember how I mentioned he was, he ran agricultural businesses? He had made enough money, and remember, as an immigrant, to pay for people's transportation and lost wages if they agreed to testify. He also paid all of the legal fees. So the numbers began to rise, and the trial began. The superintendents of Orange County Schools said, quote, Mexicans are inferior in personal hygiene, ability, and their economic outlook. They further elaborated to uh, show that the language ability could allow them to not learn even basic things in English. The hygiene issues included lice and tuberculosis and generally being disgusting. And then they had the defense attorney. Oh, oh, please tell me what the defense attorney said. Joel Ogle. Ogle off, uh, argued that Plessy versus Ferguson allowed for separate but equal schools and that special Mexican schools allowed children to learn English and become Americanized, which would be beneficial to everyone because we don't want kids acting like they're not natural born citizens or speaking with an accent, I guess. He ignored the fact that Mexican students were encouraged to leave school by eighth grade while white students were not. David Marcus comes back in, the attorney brought forth experts to dispute the claims about hygiene and made a truly genius move based on the language thing. He called a bunch of kids to testify, including but not limited to the Mendez children, all of whom were fluent in English despite being between seven and nine years old. (laughs) It was uncovered that it wasn't just them. The majority of students at Hoover spoke English and no tests were ever given to see if they should be at Hoover or at 17th Street. While the districts tried then to argue that it was totally, absolutely not about race, has nothing to do with these kids are not white. They need additional help. That's what they were trying to say. They were undermined by the Garden Grove School District Superintendent. Now, this is not his exact quote. This is a quote from tolerance.org, but I could not have phrased it better. They summarized what he said. The Garden Grove School District Superintendent said that Mexicans were intellectually, culturally, and morally inferior to European Americans. Even if a Latino child had the same qualifications as a white child, he would never allow the Latino child to enroll in an Anglo school. 
Wow. It's not about race. No, it's it's not about race. Ignore this guy who's saying it's exactly about race. It went on and it went on. And then on February 18th, 1946, Judge Paul J. McCormick, McCormick sided with the Mendez family and their cold plaintiffs, stating that segregating schools violated their 14th Amendment rights and that segregation, quote, fosters antagonisms in the children and suggests inferiority among them where none exists. Yes. He also argued correctly that segregation, based on language, works against language acquisition. Huh. My master's thesis was theater for second language education. All evidence says that if you segregate kids away from whatever language they're trying to learn to teach them in their own language, their language acquisition will be much slower. Think about how much more people learn a language when they go study in that country versus when they just sit in a classroom yeah. and try to learn it. Of course, the school districts appealed. That's when all hell broke loose for them. The ACLU, American Jewish Congress, Japanese American Citizens League, and the NAACP with Representative Thurgood Marshall jumped in as Amici Cure. Uh, Amici Cure. Uh, which means friends of the court. Yep. So we literally had Thurgood Marshall involved here. <laughs> Again, this goes back to why wasn't this mentioned when we talk about Thurgood Marshall and yeah. Brad versus Board of Education. Mm -hmm. There's another this name that's a, relevant, too. This is a very clear precursor case. And now that you're talking about it, it's like, I think I've heard about this case before because it was big part of the decision in Brown v. Board. So if the Amici? Amici Curie. It means friends of the court, which is groups or individuals that are not part of a case but can provide information, expertise, or insights to help the court decide. These groups all wrote briefs in support of Mendez's side, including Thurgood Marshall himself. On April 14, 1947, the Ninth Court of Appeal Appeals upheld McCormick's original ru ruling, and Governor Earl Warren, who should sound familiar as well, signed off on outlawing segregation only where it was not legal. He did not l end legal segregation. That said, California became the first state to desegregate schools, ultimately including both Asian and Native American students in that ruling. I couldn't find anything regarding black students. I actually like Googled all different kinds of things. If I had to guess, because segregation was legal for African-American students, it was still segregated for them. But if anybody knows, send us a tweet about it. Yeah. At on the test pod. Actually, just send us any corrections in a tweet because we would love to read them. Be nice. We're trying. Don't be nice to me. I deserve it. <laughs> uh, this was seven years before Brown versus Board of Education. By that time, Earl Warren, who made this ruling, was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and presided over Brown versus Board of Education. So I think when they got in there, they might have gone, oh, no. So on January 19th, 1948, Sylvia and her brothers walked through the doors at 17th Street Elementary. Yay! Shockingly, it wasn't easy. Oh. Their classmates were not exactly nice to them. However, they understood the gravity of the situation and the challenges their parents faced, so they did their best to make it all worth it. Sylvia grew up to be a nurse and an adoptive mother of two and grandmother of four. During her career, she became the assistant nursing director of the pediatric pavilion, said pavilion, of Southern California Medical Center. Her father, Gonzalo, who is an absolute hero, if you ask me, yeah. died of heart failure in 1964, and her mother, Felicitas, died in Sylvia's home in 1998. 
I gather neither of her parents spent much time dwelling on what they had done. It was more a matter of, our kids got to go to school. Yeah. We did something nice. Now let's get back to work. Because they, after this, they went back to just running their business. They didn't become, as far as I could tell, activists in any other way. Of course, can you imagine how exhausting just these few years must have yeah. been? Yeah. Especially because they have, like, two kids that are trying to get educated during Three. this. Three. I forgot about the third one. I'm just like my mother. <laughs> <laughs> you have another sibling? <gasps> you don't know about my third sibling? <laughs> Sylvia's still alive, living in Fullerton, California. She has retired, so she travels, and she teaches about what her parents did. And even her own website talks about how this has been forgotten by history, how her parents' plight has not been talked about in schools, how we never hear about it, how her goal is to make sure that this gets remembered, kind of like Eliza Hamilton after uh, her husband's death. We also didn't talk about him much in school. Nope. But fortunately, they made a musical about it. We need a musical about Sylvia Mendez. Hey, Lynn. Lynn, you out there? Um, Excuse me, Mr. Miranda? Can you please write a musical about Sylvia Mendez? She's still alive. You can go talk to her. I bet she'd be on board with it. It's true. Lynn, are you listening? Lynn, you have to listen to us. We talk about history. In 2011, she was awarded the Medal of Freedom by President Obama. Yay! She's also been on a stamp. She's been on a stamp? Yeah, she got the Medal of Freedom. Wait, I thought they didn't put you on a stamp unless you were dead. She's been on a stamp. Wow. So she's got the Medal of Freedom. She's been on a stamp. We never heard about her in school. Now we're getting into more of the aftermath. California schools did not include this case in their curriculum until the 2010-2011 school year. When she got the Medal of Freedom. Uh Uh-huh. Probably because, like, oh, shit, this is in the news. We better. (laughs) And I did some basic searching. There's not a really good way to search school curricula or or state curriculum, but I wasn't able to find it being required anywhere else. And it didn't sound like it was an intensive study even in California, but I'm not sure because I didn't get into the nitty-gritty of the curriculum. Today, there are still people trying to keep schools segregated on a legal level, and we still have issues with schools being segregated in informal... Like, de facto segregation? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We have schools that are white schools, black schools, Hispanics, to this day. It's just not legally mandated anymore. And the argument, segregation hurts language acquisition is true. I talked about that a little bit. We are getting better about that. When you are doing second language education nowadays, they are generally integrated into typical classrooms. They often will have their own class at some point throughout the day. I used to be a second language aide, and I'm second language certified. This is one of my biggest passions making sure everybody has the chance to learn what they deserve to learn and feel at home in the country they're living in. Yeah. The United States doesn't have an official language. It has a de facto language. Yeah. And knowing the language of the country you're in can make you feel more at home. If you don't have, you know, horrible people in charge, it's just trying to make sure that you can learn and you can have the same opportunities everybody else, regardless of what country you come from, what language you speak. So to wrap it up, the lawyer called, in addition to the children's, Felicitas, her mother, to the stand. And she testified in English because she was fluent. And she said that, quote, we always tell our children that they are Americans. Don't forget all of like the Hispanic Americans who didn't come to America. America came to them. Yeah, I never learned about that in school. Oh, yeah. We skipped that whole section. I, I do know that's what happened, yeah. though. So that is the Mendez versus Winchester, Westminster battle and Sylvia Mendez, the first girl to integrate schools in California, along with her brothers. They deserve credit, too. Yep. 
I don't know what happened to them. They weren't mentioned again. Are you ready for questions? I am ready for some questions. Outside of California, will you ever see anything on a test about this case? I kind of would hope so. Because, I mean, here in Kansas, we got a lot about Topeka versus the Board of Education. Mm -hmm. Because it, this is Kansas, and that's part of our history. You know, I, I, went to, I didn't live in Kansas my whole mm -hmm. life, but I was here for middle school and high school, part of middle school, high school, part of elementary, on and off throughout my childhood. I never once heard about this. I never heard about this either. General question. Will Thurgood, Marshall, and Earl Warren appear on tests? Oh, all the time. Yeah. This case is really important to what came from them after, but this case might never be mentioned even if they are. I think that's really interesting. And then here's a toughie for you. I think this is a tough question. Will information about segregation and how it affected people who were neither white nor black be on a test? No, because... Oh, God help me, this is not an intentional pun, but a lot of the stuff is very black and white. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you mean as in we're trying to keep things as simplistic as possible yes. for teachers and students it's to, trying to be get very, through it? It's trying to be very simplistic. Like, this is A or this is a B. There's no A.5. Yeah, and that makes sense when you're teaching really young children who don't... They're not outside of the black and white developmental stage yet. Yeah. By the time you get to high school, it should be there. Yes. I mean, really by middle school, but especially by high school. Mm -hmm. It is the end of Hispanic Heritage Month. We hope that our stories did some justice today. We learned a lot. Yes. We wish we'd learned more in school about we, these topics. We really have. And it was shocking. Like, I had both major historical figures who had gotten presidential medals of freedom during our lifetime. And it's like, there's almost nothing out there, especially on yours. On mine, there's quite a bit. So what is something you learned today? That this should have been on the test. This was, <laughs> this was Brown versus Board of Education before Brown versus Board of Education. This is like the hipster version of it. Before, <laughs> before it was cool. Come on, man. This is big. I had no idea who Cesar Chavez was. I didn't know a darn thing. I knew the name. And yeah. I could have possibly picked out a picture of him if it was one of these as Cesar Chavez. Mm -hmm. But that was never a topic that I learned about. Granted, it goes back to, I moved around a lot as a kid. And there was not a standardized history curriculum. So mm -hmm. I learned the same thing over and over. Maybe it was part of the curriculum and I just wasn't in the right school at the right time. So I, I learned everything I learned is new. Yeah. Same here again. Everything I learned, except for what the genie wrapped to me, is new. <laughs> All right, so we appreciate you taking the time to listen to us today. We are looking forward to our uh, continuing on with this. Yes. Our next couple of episodes, or maybe the one, we, I don't know yet. We're doing at least one spooky episode for Halloween, possibly yes. two. Try to find us. We are on the Twitters at on the test Pod. And please like, subscribe, whatever it is. And I've recently learned how important ratings are, especially on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, which are, okay. is Apple getting rid of their podcasts or not? I'm really confused I've about heard this. both. I've heard that they're getting rid of them and that they're not. But apparently the reviews on there are the lifeblood of, Apple, of podcasting. So if you have Apple Podcasts, review us nicely, please. Yep. We're new. We're trying. <laughs> yeah. Help us poor Android peons. We look forward to talking to you again next week. And class dismissed. Class dismissed.